0: Hello, everyone. It's good to be back. And hey, what a time to be a Utes fan.
1: And of course, right now it's time for another Thatcher Effect episode. Where do the Jazz stand in a stacked and competitive Western Conference? How realistic are their playoff chances?
0: And Utah football and basketball got some amazing and dramatic wins over the weekend. Which one
1: was the more impressive victory? And for our weekly draft segment, who are our starting five all-time Utah Jazz players? We got a good one this week, Thatch. We got a good one. Yeah, that's going to
0: be good. That's all coming up right now on The Thatcher Effect. Five, four, three, two. You're listening to The Thatcher Effect with your hosts, Nate Thatcher and Richie Osler. I didn't see that coming. All right, guys, here are today's
1: Thatcher Effect headlines. As always, Richie, tell us what's been going on with Utah Jazz. All right, the Jazz are 14-12, and haven't lost by more than 11 points since October 28th, so they're competitive in every single game. Um, They solidified their identity as a competitive team in the Western Conference. They're three games out of first place and two games out of 13th place. Um, With the Lakers surging, Warriors getting back to form, and other contenders rising, Jazz brass can lean in all in on winning or all in on getting a future draft pick. Um, They're kind of stuck in the middle right now, so we'll see how it plays out.
0: This is getting interesting, guys. I love it. And the now number eight Utah football team is heading to their second straight Rose Bowl after a 47-28 Pac-12 championship victory over the USC Trojans in Las Vegas. If you listen to last week's episode, you know that it caught both me and Richie by surprise, as I'm sure everyone else in the country. The Utes got off to a rough start after being down 17-3, but then went on a 44-7 run for the rest of the game in an absolutely dominating second half. Cam Rising won the game MVP with 310 yards passing and three touchdowns. Coaching, coaching staff is now out on the recruiting trail where they already have some impressive gets. I mean, the, the ranking that they've jumped in the national ranks in terms of recruiting is astronomical in the last week, which is amazing. Um, but, of course, like I said, they're going to the Rose Bowl. They're getting set to face off against the Nittany Lions of Penn State and Pasadena come January 2nd. So we're going to try and get you guys all prepared coming up for the next few weeks.
1: Utah men's basketball is also surging. Um, just like the Utes, they upset the number four team. Isn't that crazy? Like, upsets back-to-back back and back-to-back back nights. And it's Dude, just that- a really good weekend to be a Utes fan. Like, I know we'll bring this up, but that has to be the best weekend ever for, like, Utah sports. Oh, absolutely. Um, they started Pac-12 play 2-0. They're number 19 in the net, number 33 in the power 36, and are appearing on – A couple of way-too-early March Madness brackets, as well as getting votes for the AP Top 25. Um, The Utes will have a relatively easy homestand against Jacksonville State and UTSA before going down to Provo, facing another Top 25 team in TCU, um, which will be at the Vivint Arena, not at John Huntsman Center. Um, With opportunities to improve the next two games, the the running Utes will be a really interesting team to watch.
0: Yeah, I think... Now that they're 2 0 in conference play, I think, um, especially going down the stretch, we've got two more interesting games with, yeah, those TCU horned frogs. And I think BYU is also going to be an interesting match as well. But we actually have some big, big news topics, especially as it relates to, to Utah football. This past week, Coach Prime, AKA Deion Sanders, is in as the new Colorado football coach. Richie, what are your thoughts on this hire? I just, did you watch the video? The video, you know, which oh, yeah. video. Well, here's the thing. There's multiple videos, right? There's the press conference, and then there was like the players' meeting. Are you talking about the players' meeting one?
1: I'm talking the players' meeting one. All right, yeah, I saw that one. Tell me, tell me your thoughts about that. Uh, I kind of like it. I don't know. I think Colorado had such a crap year this last year where I'm kind of to the point where I want to see them succeed a little bit, and Coach Prime is definitely the guy to do it. I think he's coming in really strong. He's not really wanting to cut any corners. Um, He's just wanting to see who's wanting to play who isn't I think he's really challenging his players and I think ultimately that'll lead to some success for this Colorado football team as far as like big picture stuff how long do you think coach prime will stay around I I honestly think he'll probably
0: at least minimum it's got to be like half a decade because the problem is Colorado has gone through such like a coaching change every single year that I think it's hard for us to be like after a few years oh you know coach prime's not it because Unlike I feel like many other sports fans are thinking, I don't think Coach Sanders is going to have like an immediate impact like USC did, where they're going to go like 11 and 1 in the first year. Because again, like he's saying, he's bringing a lot of his players from Jackson State. Keep in mind that their competition was against, was in the SWAC conference. All right. And so now (laughs) these guys are going to be playing USC, Utah, Oregon, like completely different game. I think like the biggest plus for this hire is obviously like the culture. Um, I really liked some things that he said, especially just basically trying to revamp the entire program. And I think that's the main reason why they hired him. Some of the things that maybe caught me off guard was basically telling, I thought it was funny. There was a video of him talking to the Jackson state players when he was announcing that he was leaving them. And he was like, don't go into the transfer portal guys. You guys will get lost. Like you're not going to like get out of there. Like it's just such a mess. And then he gets to Colorado and is like, yo, all of you guys need to jump in the transfer portal. Cause I got luggage coming and It's Louie. And I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And then also straight up announcing that your son's the starting quarterback in a press conference. I mean, that's a way <laughs> to do it, right? Like, sure. So like maybe some of the is reminding me of maybe what, like a little league, like little league football team is kind of like where, maybe he has some, a little bit of nepotism, but Hey, I'm excited for him to prove himself because I think overall, like I said before, this is a culture hire. And if they're hiring from that standard, I think this was a good hire by Colorado.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think you make some really good points. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I kind of feel like they probably won't be like a 10 win team, like you said, but yeah, it's definitely a culture thing. And Everybody knows Colorado's culture has been crap this last year. So they're winning oh. in, in this hire big time. Yeah, it, it was horrendous. I think
0: like maybe in this first year, maybe they get five, six, maybe seven wins. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be double digits, but I wouldn't be surprised if they got up to nine maybe. Um, I think they'll be competitive. Like it's the same thing with Arizona. Like Arizona hired Jed Fish. Like that was a culture hire and you see it making progress over these first two years. Like I think Arizona football would be good again.
1: Like, I think you just got to give it time. How? uh, Here's a question for you. Do you think Sanders will be able to recruit some of the guys that you kind of need to succeed in Pac-12 play, like some of the four-star, five-star guys? Yeah,
0: I I think recruiting is also not going to be a problem at all for Colorado. The fact that he got like a five-star wide receiver within a matter of like 30 minutes of his hire being official, (laughs) I was like, okay, this is legit. If you're like making these players commit to Colorado to go to Boulder, within 30 minutes of your hire, like, sure, you're going to have a good time recruiting. Like, I just think it'll be interesting to see. I feel like maybe there might be some controversial moments ahead for Coach Prime. But, hey, let me tell you, I'm excited to see all of his opponents do his, like, Deion Sanders, um, like, signature dance when they score a touchdown on this team. <laughs> like, I'm excited for that. That's going to be on ESPN, like, social media all the time. I'm stoked for that. What are, what are the odds on Jaquindon Jackson doing that? Dude, I'm saying JJ does it probably – At least once, like, because I'm, I'm interested to see what the Colorado defense looks like because, like, the Colorado offense I feel like is going to be fine. I just think that defense is so bad. Like Utah, the second stringers were able to just like do whatever they wanted. Like, oh yeah, yeah, it was horrendous. Anyways, excited to see what they do at Colorado, but that's I think that's going to be an interesting program to follow as this next year goes along. Could be interesting, and then. Today we got some news that the former Weber State head coach and Utah assistant Jay Hill is now going to BYU to be their new defensive coordinator. I also think that was a really good hire for BYU in terms of culture because their defensive culture was utter garbage. And I was listening to the press conference today uh, for BYU. I work there. So like don't if any of you Ute fans like hate BYU, don't put it against me. Like it's my job. All right. <laughs> But I, I thought it was interesting because they basically said they want to implement a Utah defense, which I thought was really interesting. Make I didn't feel like it was little brother material. I felt like they both of them were like worked with the defense when they were both at Utah. And they just said that it's all about being aggressive. And BYU has just been a super non-aggressive defense, especially these last few years. Like they've had a few games where they've been really good, but he's coming back and he's basically going to be like the accountability guy to, tell these guys to step up and hopefully they can get better in recruiting as well. I know a lot of guys have respect for Jay Hill. I think they'll do, this might give them a little boost with in-state recruiting, but dude, as of right now, Utah's like just absolutely destroying the recruiting channel, especially in state. Like people are saying we have to get ready because there's going to be like a red, I guess you can say a, a, a sports red wave instead of a, a Republican red wave. As many people are predicting in the midterms, maybe we'll get an actual
1: Utah red wave. Who knows? <laughs> Hey, I'm excited. It's it's fun to open up Twitter every you know couple hours and see you got a new four star entering the portal, going to Utah. I mean, it's just I feel like so much of that is winning the Rose Bowl and then the national attention that that draws. And when you've done it back to back years, people are like, okay, this isn't fluky. This is a legit program. And I don't know it. And there's credit to the coaches because there's a lot of effort going into it. Like the pictures at the is it the the famos The uh, how, what are their names spencer and oh the fanos the fanos yeah uh the pictures at their house playing code names with with the coaches uh, that was legendary it's just like they're putting in the effort and it's obvious and i think that goes a long way when you're recruiting
0: yeah and we can we can dive more into recruiting for sure because i think that's going to be a really big topic but as always we're gonna have to start with some jazz but hey the jazz we always got some exciting topics to talk about so This Utah Jazz segment is brought to you by DraftKings. The NBA season is heating up, and there are still so many unknowns. That's what we're going to be talking about. So if you're looking to get in on the action, bet with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can bet just $5 pregame money line on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. So check this out. Right now, everyone can earn up to a 100% boost with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place the same game parlay, and combine multiple bets, like which team will win, total rebounds, and more. The more legs you add, the bigger the boost, the bigger your shot to win big. Download the app now, sign up with the code TBPN, and place a $5 pregame Moneyline bet on any NBA team to win their game, and you can get $150 in free bets if they do. So that's code TBPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply See the show notes for details.
1: All right, Richie, what are your jazz notes for us this week? Well, I first just want to start out and um, just admire the NBA standings for a second because I don't think I remember a season where there's been so much parody. I mean, in the East, it's pretty obviously Cleveland, Milwaukee, Boston. Boston ahead of everybody else. Number one offense in the NBA. Who would have saw that coming? Um, they're they're incredible. But in the West, it's it's there's so much parity. It's it's awesome. Um the Jazz currently sit in the ninth spot. They're three games out from the first spot behind Phoenix. Um the Lakers are in the 13th spot and are two and a half games behind the Jazz. They'll probably be more after tonight. The Jazz face the Warriors and the Warriors aren't really playing anybody and the Lakers aren't playing any of their guys and are playing the Raptors who are a good team. Um, So that, that gap will get bigger, but like, I just want to take a second to kind of highlight every team um, that is ahead of us and see, you know, if that's sustainable or not. So Phoenix, Phoenix is really good. Chris Paul's been out and they haven't really skipped a beat. I think they're going to be really good. Pelicans are the number two seed. Uh, They're super deep. They have like CJ McCollum or Brandon Ingram out every other night and they're still winning games and blowing teams out. And Zion looks really, really good. He's so versatile. Uh, I've been blown away by how his play this season. The Grizzlies are the number three seed. They look great. Jaw looks great. Um, Desmond Bain should be getting back from injury soon. And then the ceiling, their ceiling is really high. They're a solid team. Um, The Kings, the beam team are fourth. Their offense is really good. Their defense has improved. I think the way that they're playing is maybe not sustainable. um, But I also think that they have the identity that they need to play sustainable. So I don't think they're necessarily going to be the fourth spot, but I do think they are a playoff team this year. Um, The Nuggets are good. They've been missing Michael Porter Jr., who helps them a lot. Uh, So they lost last night to the Mavericks. They've been pretty good, though. Um, The Clippers are in sixth. They are struggling with injuries. Mavericks are in seven. They're kind of finding their identity more and more with Tim Hardaway Jr. Starting. Trailblazers are in eight right ahead of the Jazz. Damian Lillard's been out for a while, and they've started to lose some games. Then you got the Warriors, T-Wolves, and Thunder right behind the Jazz. And Warriors will definitely jump. But the Timberwolves are an interesting team. And the Jazz on their pick. And things do not look good for the Timberwolves right now. But the overall point I'm trying to make is – there's just a lot of parody in this Western conference. Um, I think the teams that are above the jazz right now, especially those one through six, one through seven teams will stay ahead of the jazz. I think it's possible the jazz could bleep Portland, but I also think that the warriors who have kind of started to figure out their groove will leap the jazz. Um, and that kind of puts jazz right in the nine, 10 spot. And that's an interesting spot to be in because you're in the play-in, you might have a shot at the playoffs, but you're also not having the best lottery odds. And in a draft where that's really important, I think that's really something that this Jazz team and the Jazz brass kind of has to figure out. Um, There are going to be a lot of guys calling about certain Jazz players, and I think that'll present opportunities for the Jazz to lean one way or not. Um, December 15th is the deadline for – or is when a lot of players become trade-eligible – so it'll be interesting to see what happens on that date and after that date up until the All-Star break because I think there will be a lot of calls. There will be a lot of rumors, and it'll just be interesting to see how it plays out. I wonder which way the Jazz team will lean. What do you think, Thatcher? Where do you think this Jazz team is is headed?
0: That's, that's a really great question, and I think that's where a lot of Jazz fans are having similar – I don't know if you want to say concerns, but I guess you could say similar questions – um like you're saying like the jazz are off to a really hot start they've kind of slipped up but overall like usually when the nba starts out the beginning of the season like you're expecting the weird teams or maybe the teams you weren't expecting to be good to be at the top right they can have hot starts but over the course of maybe 20 or so games things will start to order out maybe as we've seen in the east and i feel like almost every year the east is kind of like the big 10 in football like you have two three powerhouses a giant gap and then everyone else and so I feel like the playoffs are really predictable over there. I feel like the West is always just so crazy. I just think the West is completely stacked. And that's why I'm interested to see. It's completely off topic, but I think that's why expansion for the NBA could be interesting because it could balance out some of this parody that you've been talking about uh, between the Western Conference. Now, speaking about the Jazz in particular, we've already been talking about potential trades and you know, players' names being rumored. Like We've already talked about how uh, Jordan Clarkson's obviously a name that's going around. Um, We talked about the potential of the Jazz maybe looking to trade Kelly Olenek a few weeks ago. I think um, Mike Conley is kind of, I feel like what we've seen, especially over these last, you know, 10 or so games, however long Mike's been out, is that Mike Conley seems to be the key for how this Jazz was succeeding before. Um, Colin Sexton is... You know he's doing he's doing better but I feel like Mike Conley was really the that core piece now that we've seen that's kind of held everyone together. Lori's still putting up great numbers you know overall everyone still seems to be doing their part but having that one missing player seems to be impacting the jazz a lot. And that kind of goes into what my my note was for the jazz this week. I on my way to work early this morning I was listening uh, to 975 they were talking about the jazz. Um, I can't remember who they were interviewing but they had an interesting question and they wanted to know and I feel like I should pose this question to you as well but which schedule reflects this Utah Jazz team the most um because as of right now I have no idea which direction the Jazz are going to go like which direction they're going to go into um for an answer to your question because I feel like man the Jazz were looking so promising at the beginning of the season and it wasn't I feel like that wasn't just like a fluke because like that was 13 games like they had a really hard opening schedule a lot of games on the road against quality opponents, teams with records above 500. Like I feel like that wasn't a fluke. And then you go to these last 13 games losing record. Not great. Um, But the question that they asked this morning was which schedule reflects the team the most that 10 and three record, the last thirteen games where they went four and nine, or their overall record where they're fourteen and twelve above five hundred, and as you said, sitting at ninth place in the Western Conference. So, before I answer, I want to get your thoughts. Which, which schedule do you think reflects this
1: Utah Jazz team the most? Man, that's a really interesting um, thought experiment. I, I personally would say the fourteen and twelve. This Jazz team has a lot of talent, and I think you see that especially on the offensive side. Heck, we need to give a shout-out to Jared Vanderbilt for hitting four threes against Portland, going four for four. That was just – that was great.
0: Dude, that was awesome, especially when uh, Nurkic was just – literally, he just stared him down, went the other way, (laughs) and then Vanderbilt continued to swish a three in his face. That was awesome.
1: Dude, Nurkic has a habit of doing that. Earlier in the season when the Lakers played the Trailblazers, um, Nurkic was matched up on Westbrook a couple times and would just turn around when Westbrook shot. and I just – Yeah, I just feel like
0: that's the wrong thing to do as a defender. Like, I understand that you have, like, assignments, and maybe guys are like, okay, you don't need to worry about these guys on the perimeter, but at least, like, put a hand up or something. I think the fact (laughs) that, like, when you turn around, I feel like if someone turned around to me, I'll be like, all right, fine, bet, like, I have a wide-open three. Let's give this a shot. Like, I don't care who you are in the NBA. Like, I don't want to give you a wide-open three. Like, maybe besides Rudy Gobert. But other than that, like, I'm not going to give you a wide-open shot.
1: Yeah, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, it's such a mental game where it's almost justifiable. Yeah, that's true, too. (laughs) You got a (laughs) point there. Touche. Anyways, back to my further point. Uh, I think that this Jazz team is really reflected by their overall record. Uh, This Jazz team is solid. They have a lot of talent. They have depth, um, which are two things that you need to be able to succeed in the NBA. However, I think they're really lacking in the defensive part, um, department. And I think that's something that you need if you want to be able to succeed in the playoffs Historically, When you're looking at teams that are like 14 and 12 or around the 500 mark, they're usually teams that might make the playoffs. Um, but just aren't great defensive teams. Like I kind of think of some of these recent Portland trailblazers teams, um, where they've had Dame and CJ and they've been good. They have a lot of talent, but they just haven't had like, any playoff success. And I should, I should say that the Blazers have made the Western conference twice, Western conference finals twice. So good for them. But I just kind of think of teams like that, that just maybe are carried or willed by a superpower um, to, by a super player uh, like the thunder with Russell Westbrook. And they're just kind of stagnant right in the middle And that's kind of how I view this Jazz team. However, the caveat is I don't think this Jazz team has a player like Russell Westbrook. I think Larry Markkinen is really good, but he's not really your ball-dominant, 40% usage type of guy. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I just – I think that the 14-12 and record that they currently hold, which will probably be 15-12 and tonight, is a really good reflection of what this team is. Because when you stack them against other teams in the West – they're probably not as good as any of the teams that i mentioned before them or uh, that are ahead of them in the standings right now but i also don't think that they're necessarily worse than any of the teams that are below them so they're kind of right where they are right where they should be in my eyes
0: yeah i that's where i agree with you i think the 10-3 record was awesome but i also think the 4-9 is not like consistent because again we have injuries and i think considering like depth Uh, I don't think we have a problem with offense at all. Like you look at where Mike's been out and we're scoring, you know, anywhere from 120 to 140 points a game without our starting point guard. Like, I don't think scoring is a problem. Like you said, it's a defensive problem. And you see that while we have won some of those games, like the other opponent is scoring at a high rate as well, which is cause for concern. And I think that's, that has to be the question that I think the jazz need to answer because I think some of the core pieces that we know they want to keep going through this year and beyond, they're they're the scores like they're the guys that can you can trust in the clutch like we've already seen Markkinen is going to be that go to guy in the final seconds of close games, but we haven't really seen as much of like a really big defensive stand type game like we haven't seen that many games this year where the Jazz have made some critical stops. Um, I've maybe the one I can think of is against the Suns, um, but at the same time they're scoring at a high caliber and I feel like that kind of translates to not really needing as much defensively. Uh, You really only had to guard one guy that game. So I think that's really has to be the biggest question moving forward. And something that I think we're going to be talking about a lot as you talk about um, these trademarks coming up in the NBA, like that's has to be what the jazz have to focus on. Uh, It has to be on the defensive end and whether that is, if they want to improve it this season and they want to make a statement and maybe go for the playoffs, but if they're planning long-term, like most of us thought they were before the season, I am interested to see what kind of moves they make um, to complete that because again like a lot of guys have been stepping up um, offensively. Um, I, I like you said Jared Vanderbilt he was he stepped it up against Portland with some threes and we we've talked about Kelly Olynyk before struggling with defense but again like a proven shooter. Are there any players like in specific to you that have like stood out? especially like during this rough stretch, guys who have gotten a little bit more time. Is there anyone who's like stuck out in your mind of who's been improving the most?
1: Well, yeah, there's a couple. I want to get back to Jared Vanderbilt though, because I think if he's able to shoot like he did, not necessarily 100% shooting, but if he's able to confidently shoot like he did against Portland and be a perimeter threat at volume, I think that totally unlocks what this Jazz team can do. Because I don't think Kelly Olinick is gonna be your franchise center but hey walker kessler's been playing really good walker kessler's averaging four blocks per 36 minutes uh yeah that's that's insane defensive potential of this team sorry sorry oh my gosh
0: i was just gonna say that's like insane for a rookie like astronomical
1: yeah no it's it's crazy i'm i'm astounded by him um i also just think he's one of the players i'd like to highlight because he is such a threat On both sides of the glass, Um, his offensive rebounding is really good and his defensive rebounding is really good. He just has really great hands, which is kind of refreshing to see after watching Rudy Gobert because Rudy Gobert just didn't have great hands. Like he was phenomenal defensively and he led the league in rebounds, but it seems like the ball would just kind of hit his hands and maybe bounce off like four or five times a game. And you don't really see that with Walker Kessler, which is refreshing to see um the last player i want to highlight is on sexton who has seemingly taken kind of a leap in the last five games um i want to look at that detroit game because i think that was a really interesting game for this jazz team um they lost by they lost by nine bojan bogdanovich had a great game uh, alec burks i think had a pretty good game though he might not have played that game actually i'm thinking of he played denver the night before um but Colin Sexton also had a pretty good game. He was minus 11, but he did have 17 points and 12 assists. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch the development of Colin Sexton because he's getting more and more opportunity. And he's almost starting to look like the guy you want him to be. Um, like the guy that you, ex- you extended to a four-year deal. Um, over his last six games... Against Golden State, he had 13 points and seven assists, was plus two. Uh, Against Phoenix, he had 20 points, five assists, was plus one. Um, Against uh, Chicago, he was 17, six, plus five. Against the Clippers, he had 21, six assists, was plus 19. Granted, he did have seven turnovers that game, not great. Um, Against Indiana, he had 18 points, five assists, was minus three that game, but the Jazz blew Indiana out. Um, and against Portland the other night, he had nineteen and three, and was plus eight. So a couple of these games are losses. Um, out of all the games I mentioned, the only two that weren't losses were the Clippers and Indiana. And I just think it's interesting to look at this because he's been a positive for the Jazz in every single one of those games, besides Indiana in a jazz, in a game that the Jazz won. Um, I think. Colin Sexton is starting to look like the guy you want him to look like against Indiana. Specifically. He had a lob that looked Mike Conley esque uh, Walker Kessler was rolling to the rim and he threw it to the far side of the rim where only Walker Kessler could reach it. And then Walker Kessler dunks it. I just think that's something that looked so much like Mike Conley. That that's a direct stamp of Mike Conley's impact on Colin Sexton. Um, They talked about how they talk on the plane, how they watch film together. And I think that's starting to show off. Um, Colin Sexton will probably go back to the bench in the next couple of games as Mike Conley and Rudy Gay get ready to return to the lineup. But I do think this has been a really good opportunity for him to show that he can be a capable playmaker. Maybe not your number one playmaker, but definitely somebody that you'd want on the floor to help pass, to help move the ball and to help facilitate.
0: Yeah, I think this was these last few games have kind of been a tryout in ways of him to try and see that he can be a core piece in the Jazz's plan moving forward. And I was absolutely going to agree with you. You kind of stole what I was going to say, which is perfect. But I think that's Mike Conley is a kind of point guard that you want to learn from as a young guy in the NBA, because I feel like Mike Conley has been on some fantastic teams where he's been able to manifest how good he is in understanding the layout of the offense that he's given. And to give the other guys opportunities, and his ball placement is phenomenal. I feel like he, I never, I, I feel like I can always trust him. Like I have the utmost confidence in him to get things done when he needs to, because I feel like Mike Conley has a very high IQ. Colin Sexton has the athleticism. Like that's that's a given. You see his speed on a fast break. You you see how athletic he is. How high his vertical is. I think when you add the IQ of a guy like Mike Conley to Colin Sexton's game, like that's where he's going to take it to the next level. So I'm interested. I'm interested to see once Conley and gay come back. And as you said, Sexton moves back into that bench role. Like, will he translate that and then serve as a commodity, like a proven commodity on the bench, like that second rotation? Because now I feel like with him getting those needed minutes to improve being in the starting lineup and he comes back off the bench, Maybe this gives the Jazz a little bit of a boost in that second rotation, because when Mitchell and Gobert were here, like we had Clarkson, we had like a great second rotation, especially in 2021 when or 2020 when we had, you know, the number one team in the regular season. Like it just felt like there was never really a drop off between the two rotations. In fact, that's what makes a really good NBA team. There's no drop off, and so that I think that's what Sexton really has to work on. Like you said, he's been improving on. Um, so I'm going to be inter- interested to see what he does, especially they're playing the Warriors tonight. Um, obviously, no marketing uh, no Conley, as we've heard. So I'm interested to see what kind of effect that has on him, not having another commodity and marketing on the floor with him. But some things to take note of. I'm excited to talk more about this Jazz team. Lots of stuff to think about. But the talk of the town right now has to be the Utes, football and basketball. But we're going to start with some football. Richie, tell me your thoughts as you're
1: watching that championship game on Friday. What's going through your mind, my man? dude I my first thought is while watching that game is why am I at the jazz game watching this uh, the reception was okay you know I, I was probably like 45 seconds behind everything that was happening in real time so between watching the game and scrolling through Twitter I feel like I got a decent feel of how the game was going but it just it's not the same as when you're truly watching it heck I'm, I'm sure it's not even close to the experience you had at the game. Like, I want to hear kind of what the experience was like um, at the game. Like, what was the what was the environment like? The environment was
0: definitely different than it was uh, last year against Oregon. I felt like last year it was completely dominated by Utah start to finish. The fans, like, it was an enormous differential. This one was different. Um, there were still a majority of Utah fans, but it was a lot closer than a lot of people were predicting. I'd say it was maybe 60-40 Utah to USC. And I actually had tickets on the USC side. So in my section, there's probably like 50-50, maybe 60-40 USC fans. The environment was amazing. Uh, From start to finish, it was always loud. Uh, Third downs on whenever either team was going, always loud. It was a fantastic environment. And I prefer it actually over last year because I just think it made for such a great game. Um, there were times even when Utah was making that great run in the second half where USC showed some life and their crowd got into it. Like their crowd didn't leave until the Jaquinta Jackson touchdown. So up until then, like the environment was amazing. It was so sick. Um, I love the USC fans rowdiness. Um, those guys really know how to piss you off, um, after a few touchdowns. Um, but it was, it was, it was sick. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my experience, uh, back at Allegiant stadium. So
1: it was awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, yeah, what, what, what an incredible environment. Um, talking about this Utes team, last week we kind of mentioned how we felt like some guys needed to specifically step up, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Um, we kind of knew that USC was going to limit Kincaid after his incredible game in October against USC. So it was interesting to see how Utah was going to be able to attack. And one of the names we mentioned was Jaquindon Jackson. Jaquinnon Jackson is a revelation. That's the word I would use to describe him the way that he's been able to come out as a running back after being the third string quarterback earlier this year. I I mean, if if you look on ESPN, you can look at his QBR for the last couple of games, which is kind of interesting. And he's got like 96 QBR in the last three games, just as a running back. Um, But Jaquinnon Jackson has been so good. So against USC, he had 13 attempts, 105 yards. His longest one was obviously that touchdown for 53 yards. Against Colorado, he had 117 yards, 10 attempts, um, and he had that long 66-yard one against um, a horrendous Colorado defense. The overall point I want to make about Jaquinnon Jackson is I just think he's so good. His strength, his speed, the way he's been able to read the pocket – I think a little bit of that has to come from being a quarterback, from being behind your offensive line. He's used to running. That's probably what his calling card was in high school. Um, so he's, I feel like he's just fit into this running back spot miraculously. And he's been holding onto the ball more. He has been doing great. I just think the this guy has a really high ceiling as a running back, and I'm so excited to see what a full season of – Training, what a full off season of conditioning and being a running back, learning how to play like a running back looks like on this guy. He was so good against USC. He, I definitely not, did not expect him to have the game that he had, but I'm so happy he did because his story is so cool. Um, come To come from Texas, to be friends with two Utah legends in Aaron Lowe and Ty Jordan, and then to be the recipient of the Ty Jordan scholarship this year. To have the kind of year that he did, it's really just a great testament to the character of this guy. I think he is so awesome to watch. He's going to be really fun the next couple of years. And also just a special shout out for the Caleb William comments. Um, After the game, they asked him him and Cam Rising about uh, Caleb William's fingernails, which said F Utah, and he just said that's cute. And I feel like that was the perfect response. That was was cute, Caleb, but an even better response from Jaquindon.
0: Yeah, Jaquindon has turned out to be a guy that has a storybook. uh, It's just like a storybook story this year. Um, Like you were saying, I just feel like everything has been falling into place for that guy to succeed at Utah. And when I saw that he first was committed to Utah after Texas, like that night, I remember exactly where I was. We might have been together. I was in the In-N-Out drive-thru backseat, and I saw – holy crap, this like four-star quarterback from Texas just committed to Utah. His speed is insane. And I was like, yo, this is going to be a, this is a good commit. But he was just stuck behind, right? Rising's been great. And obviously Bryson Barnes has proven he's can also be effective at quarterback. And I, I've been talking with every Utah fan this year. and I feel like everyone was saying he needs to be used in some form or way because he's just such an athlete, right? He's kind of like that NFL Taysom Hill kind of guy where you just need to use him because of the athlete that he is. And I think like, that's probably the role that he can play if he goes to the next level. Like he can be the athlete type of guy. But man, his, his ability to read gaps as a running back, like these first few games, phenomenal. Uh, especially on that long run, it seemed like at first it was kind of a broken down play. Man, he just seemed to find the right holes at the right time. And his breakaway speed is fantastic. Absolutely love JJ. Um, my biggest thing that I learned was obviously, I think the defensive performance that Utah put on. Man, that first quarter was rough to watch. Uh, Caleb Williams was just getting everything that he wanted. But on the two main touchdown drives that they had in the first quarter, it was off of busted coverage, and it was huge plays. Um, the first drive, it was a, a first down or second down right after they had converted a short fourth down. And it, every time that Caleb Williams ran out of the pocket, he just found a guy wide open. And something I rewatched the game on Fox, and something interesting that interesting that the – color commentator Brock Heward had to say was that it seemed like a lot of the secondary was looking at Caleb Williams eyes rather than focusing on their assignments. Like that's just a testament to the type of quarterback though, that Caleb Williams is like, I know Utah fans like we've loved to make fun of him and I'll continue to be the guy that pokes fun at Caleb Williams. But man, like he has the respect of every defense he plays to the point where guys were like this Utah defense was like missing their assignments because they were just straight looking at his eyes because they wanted to, he just had all of their focus. So the first quarter was rough because, again, they were busting their coverage, um, losing their man deep, and of course the USC wide receivers—they're all proven four-star, five-star guys. They found the open spots on the field, were able to get chunk plays. Fast forward—I know Caleb Williams is injured, but the type of blitz packages that Morgan Scally drew up were phenomenal. Like. I did not see some of those packages like at any point in my life. Um, for some of them, he had Gabe Reed off of the line of scrimmage and kind of in a linebacker-type role, um, blitzing on the outside, cutting corners. I mean, I saw guys crossing. like At one point, there's like three or four guys crossing every blitz, and I felt so bad for the USC offensive line because first off, you want to protect your injured quarterback. But second off, these Utah guys were just going every which direction. And that's what I said they had to do on Caleb Williams was because you needed to protect him Um, or sorry, you need to get after him because if he has pressure that just makes him less accurate, like he's always going to get his and still like his stats were really good this game, but you need to put pressure in his face because that's going to give you some opportunities to get turnovers, which they eventually did at a really crucial moment of the game. Um, I also have to say Clark Phillips saved, um, a lot of people have been asking like, what's the turning point? Like what, what was the play that maybe changed to swing the momentum into Utah's favor, I'd have to say it was third and goal. USC's at the five yard line. And it's a one-on-one between the defending Balitnikov award winner and Jordan Addison against Clark Phillips on the outside. Simple in route. And I feel like every time this is drawn up, like this is a given touchdown for offenses. Clark Phillips had the most beautiful deflection I've probably ever seen live. Like, how would you offend a short slant on the defending Balitnikov award winner? Like, I just don't understand it. And luckily, I had a really good spot for that that defensive play. And that right there, I was like, I literally said out loud, I was like, okay, Clark Phillips has to be an NFL cornerback next year because he is locking down his guy. And it got to the point where Jordan Addison, I think, had one good play and he was screaming at Clark Phillips' face because he knew he just wanted to you know, get his in because he had just been locked down the entire game. But overall, I feel like this defense is proving that, man, they can get stuff done. And what we're seeing right now with who's coming back And now who's transferring to Utah? Like this defense, I feel, is going to be right back to where they were a few years back when the Utah defense was the star of the show. Um, Today, it was just announced that Stanford's star linebacker over the past four years, their leader in tackles, um, the uh, Damuni kid or Dumani kid, I can't remember his name, but he's coming to Utah. And I was like, wow, what a transfer pickup. Like that was the guy to get out of the Pac-12. And now I'm looking at this linebacker unit. a thing that I think we all saw as a weakness at the beginning of the season. Now you have uh, the defending Pac-12 defensive uh, freshman of the year um, in Cody Barton. Karen A. Reid's coming back after a successful season. And now you add DeMuni from Stanford. Like, dude, this linebacker core is looking pretty good. I think the only thing really missing from the defense starting next year would be another lockdown corner. That can replace Clark Phillips. But that defense was phenomenal in the second half. I think they accounted for seven sacks for the total game. And if you add the four that they got in Salt Lake City, Utah accounted for almost 50% of USC sacks this entire season. And that has to be that has to be something notable, especially against the USC offense that they faced both times. Like I just have to give a huge nod to the defensive side of the ball. They put up a great game against USC.
1: Yeah, that that game was awesome, uh, especially from the defensive side of the ball. I feel like Coach Scally and just the Utah staff in general is so good at game planning for these big games because from the get-go, even though USC scored a couple of times, a couple of quick ones, there was pressure on the quarterback. Um, And the difference, like you mentioned, was the secondary coverage or lack of where USC was able to score. Um, I just think... It's so valuable when you got a guy like Clark Phillips able to lock down stuff down the field because that allows your defensive front to be able to rush the quarterback to put pressure on him and just do their thing. And if you I don't know if you remember, but at this beginning of this year, we were talking about how young this defensive core is. And if they're this good this early, then I really think the sky's the limit for this defensive core. Like you said, we could be looking at a really good defense next year. And that'll be, that'll be refreshing to watch um, as our offense probably maybe tries to figure things out under a new quarterback. But I want to talk about some of the narratives around this game, mainly the narrative coming from USC fans, which is that Utah got lucky. In my eyes, this game played out a lot like the game in October did. The only difference is USC wasn't able to score in the second half which Utah kind of did against against them in October. They were able to kind of shut them out. Um, when you look at this Utah team and kind of the game that they played, it's really interesting because they, like you said, didn't really shut down Caleb Williams from the start. Um, they were down three to 17, but they just didn't stop fighting. And it's kind of like what happened in October where they scored a touchdown Um, with three minutes left and then you're like okay we get the ball to start the half you know this this might start looking good but then you score another one um like with two seconds left uh Jalen Dixon four yard pass from from Cam Rising that was a great play and all of a sudden it's like it's tied and you get the ball to start at half um and then Utah goes they score again they get another field goal they um, allow, or they allow USC to score one. So it's 27, 24. Then that giant play from Yasmin is just trucking USC defenders. Then the Jaquin and Jackson run, and then it's over. And McKay Bernard has one last touchdown to put the nail in the coffin. But I just think it was so incredible because I don't think you talk out lucky. I think they played the same way that they played against USC in October. And you could say, Hey, maybe they got lucky then. I I just don't really think that's the case. I think they played a better second half than USC did. And I think there's some stats to prove it. This USC team really struggled to get the ball up the field, especially in the second half. Um, Their third down efficiency was really bad the entire game. They were one for 12, which is just horrendous. And that's like not something you really see out of Caleb Williams in a USC offense. Um, USC, Granted, they had a really good passing game. They weren't able to rush the ball, and part of that is Travis Dye being out, but I also just think Utah's front line was able to contain them. They weren't able to get anything, and so I don't think this game was lucky. I think Utah out-schemed them. I think Utah played them. You can make the argument that Caleb Williams got injured, and that was why they weren't able to stay in the game, but – Even an injured Caleb Williams was able to do stuff, was able to make plays. He's still a Heisman guy. He was wanting to play. If he's really that injured, then he'd get off the field, right? It's kind of like watching a soccer player. I don't want to downplay his injury because it might have been worse than I knew. But it's kind of like watching a soccer player where they might get a slide tackle and then they start kind of limping. But then as soon as the ball gets going towards them once they have a fast break and are able to maybe have a breakaway score then they just start sprinting it's like nothing even happened i feel like we're kind of getting a little bit of that energy from caleb williams um where he was trying to limp whenever he could trying to put on a show but then when it came to play he was ready to play and so i just don't think utah got lucky this game i think they simply outschemed usc and it was a beatdown.
0: Yeah. I think something that stood out to me was when urban Meyer was talking on the Fox halftime and post game show was that it wasn't a defensive problem in the first half. Like they just had a Caleb Williams problem. Like I said, they were able to rush him. He was getting out of the pocket and making some fantastic throws, but he said like, I don't feel like their game plan changed at all. Even when they were down 17 three to then when they absolutely blow USC out in the end, like their game plan didn't change. Like they just had the better scheme. Like you were noting to before, I think, A lot of USC fans were frustrated, obviously, because you're going to the playoff if you win this game. But I am. A lot of people are saying like, "Yo, this is awesome for Caleb Williams." That like he's he was he wanted to stay in. Like he's got that dog in him, you know. Like even if he's injured, like he wants to help his team out. I want to I want to get your perspective on this because Caleb Williams, like he he used the Kobe uh, narrative, saying, "Oh, I'm inspired by Kobe." Right? He had these big injuries, but he stayed in the game. I think the difference is, I mean, Kobe is. Like he had a torn Achilles able to like shoot a free throw, but like he was proven like he was not gonna give up, but like he didn't um work like worsen his team in those big moments because that was just Kobe. This is like completely different. I feel like Caleb Williams was impacting his team in a negative way when he started to get severely injured at the end of the game, like to the point where he's not able to move around as efficiently and get out of that pocket. So like Utah got a ton of sacks in that third and fourth quarter. Like that's where all those numbers came from because he wasn't as efficient in getting out of the pocket when pressured. I want to get your, your take. Like, do you feel like it's better for an injured teammate to be like, no, I got this man. I can help you out. Or do you feel like it would have been the better thing to do for him to say like, no, like coach, like the backup will be like, you have a better chance of winning without me. Like, what do you feel about that in terms of
1: his injury in that game? That's, that's something that's really interesting to think about. Um, I don't know. I guess it probably depends on how injured they are. Like if you're still getting like 80% of LeBron James, you probably still want 80% of LeBron James over Austin Reeves. Um, That's true. Like, We don't know, like, what
0: the backup quarterback was. But, like, in my eyes, I feel like that game showed how much I feel like Caleb Williams controls Lincoln Riley. Because I feel like at that point when Utah's starting to, you see their offense clicking and then you see your offense just not getting things going, I feel like it gets to the point where, like, you have to have that trust as a coach. Like, hey, I feel like right now you're not our best shot at coming back in this game. Like, I just thought that was interesting.
1: No, yeah, I'd agree there. It does seem like he is, I don't know, him and Lincoln Riley are obviously really tight. But it does kind of seem like he has been controlling Lincoln Riley in that way. And maybe it's not as intentional as we're making it out to be. But I, I don't know. There's just, it seems like Caleb Williams just has a very loud voice in that locker room and things are kind of done his way. I, yeah, I kind of wonder like, how does that game look if when he gets injured, they put in their backup, who quite frankly is probably a five star because it's USC. Um, and yeah, I think, I think he's a four or five star. <laughs> right. So it's probably not this just scrub. It's not like you're putting in some pig farmer from Beaver, Utah, Um, but you're putting in a four or five-star guy who will probably be your quarterback in a couple of years, maybe. I don't know. Transfer portal's crazy, but yeah, I I think as Caleb Williams, like if you really want to win, then sometimes that takes being humble. And that takes, you know, letting the guy behind you, maybe take your spot. If that gives your team a better shot at winning, And I don't think Caleb Williams is necessarily the guy that's going to be humble. Credit to him. He's an incredible player. Like we've said, he's probably still my pick for Heisman. And I don't think I saw anything maybe from Max Duggan, but I don't think I saw anything, any, any other things this weekend that would sway me from taking him as my Heisman, taking him as my number one pick, not this next draft, but the one after. Um, He's an incredible player and kind of think I don't know. I wonder if him staying in that game was something to show that he had fight, that he had that quote unquote dog in him and he was able to, you know, have that Kobe Mamba mentality, stay in the game, fight till the end. And maybe that's something that the Heisman voters look at. I don't know. But yeah, it it did kind of seem a little superficial.
0: Yeah, that was that was just something that I noticed, especially being there in person. I thought it was interesting, interesting to see their interactions throughout the game, especially as I felt like he was getting it was more noticeable that he was getting more injured. My second note, my last note for this Utah football team is uh, the players that have been, I feel like, leaning more towards going towards the league have been a little cryptic in their social media. Uh, we saw that Keithy posted on Instagram that winning just makes you want to do it again. And even Duncan Kincaid commented on it with three rings and a question mark, but I don't think Dylan's coming back. And the media today talked to Rising and said, well, does this impact you? Like, does this win the Pact of championship and wanting a 3 P impact you and coming back, wanting to come back? And he's like, I don't know, man, we'll, we'll see. Um, let's just play hypothetical. We can play a little imaginative game here because I don't know if, I don't think this is very likely, but say that Keithy and Rising both come back on offense next year. What do you think is the ceiling for this Utah football team come next year?
1: Man, that's, that's, that's a really good question. And to be honest, I've probably put too much thought into it. Um, I've already been thinking about this. I've been thinking about what the Utah offense could look like with those two guys back. People might forget as good as Kincaid has been that Keithy was rising's number one option. And healthy Keithy is really good. He's such a playmaker. He's able to get five or six extra yards after he catches it every single time. He totally unlocks this offense. And I think Cam has been able to find some new weapons too. Um, I think that game against USC showed that he could go to different guys. He went to Money Parks for that big touchdown. He went to um, Yasmin for that big touchdown. He, He showed that he's able to be versatile as long and be able to win in a lot of different ways. He doesn't just have to throw to his tight ends. I think Utah will have the opportunity to upgrade some positions through the transfer portal. Um, I mean, how many guys entered yesterday? It was like 1500. So you're going to have some shots to get maybe a dynamic wide receiver, which Utah frankly didn't really have this year as good as Vele has been. They didn't really have the guy that's going to be such a good playmaker. And so I think that would hypothetically unlock a whole new offense. And then you're factoring in the run game, which I think is going to be really improved and a lot more consistent next year. Um and Jackson, like we said, is gonna be RB1. He's really good. Jalen Glover will have shots to be really good. Uh we'll see about Chris Curry if he's back. And I think it'll just be a really interesting year if that hypothetical comes to pass. Um I don't know if if they come back, then you're definitely talking about playoffs again.
0: Yeah, I think if Rising and Keithy both return, like there has to be conversation that this team could potentially be better than this year's team, especially if they win the Rose Bowl. Like I think even then, like yo, I feel like we could do this. Like we could run this back. The only thing that holds me back from Utah being like a clear favorite would obviously be Caleb Williams comes back. Bo Nix is hitting. Our returning obviously, Michael Penix has said he's coming back. So the Pac-12 would be deep again at the top. I think you'd have those four teams or those three teams. Um, just I think a league above everyone else because of the the quarterback play. But man, even like I I looked at Yasmin's eligibility. Technically, he's still a junior. So like your tight end group would still be pretty stacked. And there's rumors that Utah could land Walker Lyons, who just decommitted from Stanford and who was favored to go to Utah before, like. This team could be really good next year, and I'm excited to see what the recruiting trail continues to look like for the Utes moving forward. But we got to talk about the running Utes. I mean, come on. That had to have been one of the greatest Utah Utes basketball games we've seen in a long time. Like, I mean a long time. That's probably the best. I got to go see the first half before we had to go drive down. I'm so sad I had to leave at halftime. But I got to go see the first half before we had to drive down to Vegas. That had to have been the best half of basketball I've seen in person from the Utes since the, you know, DeLon Wright, uh, Jakob Pertl, Brandon Taylor era of Utah basketball. I mean, what were you, what was going through your mind as
1: you're watching the running needs take it to the Wildcats last Thursday? Man, I, I thought the game plan was really superb. Um, I went back and watched the game once, maybe twice, and I was amazed at how well Craig Smith prepared his guys for this game. Last year when Utah played Arizona, Kirk Reza was such a problem. It felt like it felt like every time Utah was able to go in and run that game, was able to stay close, that Kirk Reza would just light it up. Um, this game, Raleigh Wooster, who I really want to talk about, absolutely shut Kirk Reza down. Tubelis and uh, Bala were both great that game. Tubelis kind of started slow. He had uh, Brandon Carlson on him, and that forced him to shoot from the outside, which he's just not a good three-point shooter. And then Ballo had um, Ben Carlson on him and Brandon would come and help. And it was a really good way to set set the tone and be able to start the game. Raleigh Wooster, I think, was the spearhead of this game. And I he won the Pac-12 player of the week, deservedly. He was great this game. Um, he had 12 points, 9 assists, 11 rebounds, almost put up a triple-double. I don't know if I've ever seen a Utah men's basketball player put up a triple-double, but that might just be as close as we get. Um, Like I said, he was phenomenal guarding Kirk Reza. He also limited himself to three turnovers, which I think is a plus. Um, I think if you're putting up a nine assist to three turnover ratio, three to one, I think that's great. Um, But Raleigh Wooster, I think he unlocks this Utah men's basketball team. He can be really good. And he's shown that he has improved from last year. At the beginning of the season, we were talking about hey, should Saunders be the guy? Should Wooster be the guy? And it's pretty obviously Wooster right now because when he is popping, he all of a sudden is a really good defender. He's a three-level scorer. His playmaking has been great. I feel like he really has good chemistry with Carl with both Carlsons. And he's just able to get his guys in the right place. And so I'm really high on Wooster. I think he really unlocks this Utah team and what they can be. I think if he keeps up this level of play, maybe limits his turnovers a little bit more but stays at a three-level scorer and facilitates this Utah offense at a high level. I think that this Utah team has a higher ceiling than we thought beforehand.
0: Yeah, they are, they've been, that, that game was amazing. And I think Raleigh Wooster, you have to give it to him. Like he just seemed to have command of every aspect of that game. Um, I think there were a lot of guys though, that really stood out, um, obviously like brandon carlson's going to get his like he had 22 points right and he he shot 5 of 9 from 3 um but one guy that stuck out to me stuck out to me and i think most other utah fans was kabe kada like this is a freshman who has no basketball experience we talked about him a little bit when they were playing in florida now you're playing up against arizona and although like the stats themselves don't really prove how much of an impact he had on this game like i think he finished with 7 points an assist and one rebound or excuse me. Sorry. I'm reading the wrong stat line. He had 11 rebounds and seven points. Um, like I think his presence in the paint alone against like a dominant center for the wildcats, um, in, in Balo, or I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I I couldn't say that I watched the game, but I just think his presence alone as a freshman in the paint, he seems to, even though it still seems like he's kind of learning the basics of the game and trying to understand where to put things, like, man, he had some incredible moments where I thought, wow, this guy can really be a star. Um, one that sticks out to me is the putback dunk after the missed free throw. Uh, obviously, the blocked shot when we were on that really big run. He just seems that he can, the more that he has plays like this, the more he gains confidence. I think he'll get better. And obviously, like, his IQ will get better and, and how he moves in the game. But, dude, Kada I think, is going to be a star to look out for in this Utah Utes basketball program. I feel like I'm 0 for one so far in calling that cuz I think I called Stefanovic a future Utah Utah a Utah star um which I don't think is going to happen but he's he's playing he's playing fine but I think Kabeckata can really be that guy for the Utes going forward after Carlson and I have a lot of confidence in him being that backup to to Brendan I felt like last year we kind of had a drop off um when it came to our backup center um, I can't remember his name who is the guy that got that got released
1: Deshaun Morgic
0: yeah, especially yeah. after he got released, like he showed some moments and some flashes when he came in for Carlson, but especially after he left, like we didn't really have anyone down low to protect that paint. And that's where I feel like a lot of uh, Utah's losses really suffered from. So it's it's refreshing to see a guy that can back up Carlson, especially with so much inexperience that I I think Kata can be a really big piece moving forward. Um, but I'm interested to see how the rotation looks uh, for Utah, especially going into Pac-12 play. What, what do you think about what we've seen between the rotation of Utah these last few games?
1: Yeah, I think we've gotten a really good feel of what this rotation looks like. It looks like it's going to be a solid nine-man rotation. And personally, I'm a big fan of that. I think the more guys you include, it can get complicated. I think once you start running a 10 or 11-man, then guys might start be getting out of their groove. But the last two games, they've ran a nine-man rotation. Um, they've been starting Wooster, Madsen, Marco Anthony, um, and then the Carlson Twin Towers um, in the front court. And I really like this rotation because it has something that he didn't really have last year in size and in rebounding. Carlson, uh, Brandon is a great rebounder. Marco Anthony is a great rebounder. But Ben Carlson is also a really good rebounder. He kind of seems like Riley Batten, but a better rebounder. And I mean Riley Batten because he's, you know, okay at defense. Doesn't really finish anything on offense, even though everything looks like it's going to go in. But he is just a much better rebounder, and I think that's where this Utah team is kind of filling that gap. Because I kind of think that's what Coach Smith wanted last year: is he wanted Batten to be the role that Ben Carlson has been playing, and I think Ben Carlson has been playing it at a much higher level. Um, so you got those five to start. Then off the bench, you got four guys. You usually have Stefanovic playing um, coming in, being your first guy off the bench. And he's been playing good in the last two games. I think he's done exactly what you've needed to him to do. He's scored. He's passed. He's helped facilitate the second unit. Um, along with Stefanovic, you have wilkins Exact junior who didn't play a ton in the Washington State game, but played a bit in the Arizona game, made some big plays. I just feel like everything – I just feel like good things happen when he is on the floor. I'm really excited about wilkins Exact, um, And then, like you said, uh, Keba, Keba – has been playing really phenomenal minutes. And then Saunders has kind of been fringe rotational player. He played eight minutes against Washington State in an overtime game. So it'll be interesting to monitor his situation, whether he gets more or less run. I think he has potential to be good. He's really good when he's attacking the basket, when he's aggressive, but he hasn't really been that the last couple of games. Um, so you, we have a really good blueprint of what this rotation looks like. But what excites me most is that you still have depth. You still have some other guys off the bench that could play more, that could maybe add some new things to this team if you get an injury. I think Tarlatch, like we said, has some potential. Uh, he did a lot of things right in those first two games that he played in, and he hasn't played since, but he he looks great. Um, I also think Gavin Baxter has potential to put up solid minutes. Um, and I think his situation will be will also be interesting to monitor, especially as Pac-12 play starts, and maybe he's healthy, maybe he's not, um, but he's definitely somebody that could help this rotation. Overall, I just think it's a really good rotation. You have a pretty clear identity of who you are as a team, and I think once you have that identity, that goes a long way, especially as you're trying to win big games in Pac-12 play. When you know who you are, when you know how to play together, things can just I don't know, start to fall into place. And so that's why I kind of think this Utah team has maybe a higher ceiling than we anticipated.
0: I think especially in the first few games of the season, Utah was testing out those rotations and rightfully so because you had a lot of turnover. But I think the Arizona game really solidified what Craig Smith wants his rotation to look like. Because again, Gavin Baxter was seemed to be getting the the second rotation minutes at the center position. But because of the success that they had against the number four team in the country, who frankly I thought should have been you know maybe top two based on the performance that they put up in maui like that was a great game by utah and i think when you have a game like that like you have to solidify your roster because you saw the chemistry was working the game plan was working everything seemed to be going in your direction and kind of what you were talking about with the the first rotation i feel like overall everyone has just a unique element of their game that adds to the type of play Um, when they're on the court, like you talked about Carlson with his ability to rebound and maybe he's not that good of a shooter. You got Marco Anthony, who I feel like his mid range is, he's kind of like the, how do I, he's kind of like the DeMar DeRozan of the PAC 12, you know, like he's, he just seems to let loose in the mid range. And then you got guys like Madsen, who you can trust from the three, you got Wooster three level score, um, Saunders, who just seems to be able to cut really fast. Um, really sneaky on offense, um, cut behind screens and stuff like that. So I'm excited to see how they look moving forward. Like my biggest question, especially after the Arizona game was like, is this just an anomaly? Like, is this just like that one good game a year? Now we're going to go back to who we were before. I think the Washington state game was, um, maybe a way to prove that wrong. Like I know it's Washington state, not the greatest basketball team, um, in the conference. But the fight that Utah had, especially going down the stretch, they were up by, you know, eight at halftime. They lose that again because of turnover problems. But being able to fight back, especially in the end, and Wooster was a really big part of that. He was able to find the right guys, make the right plays, come back in overtime, and just execute on offense as well as on defense. I think the two big games that we have to look for especially in these next few weeks is BYU and TCU. Like, I feel like those two games will tell us more about what this Utah team's about. You have TCU, who is a, another, again, like another really good basketball program. You get them in a, a, not a great environment, right? Because we made the agreement not to play, not like a home and home. We played them. Um, I believe Did we played them at an NBA court
1: last year. Didn't we? Yeah. It might've been like Dallas or Houston or, I can't. I can't remember. But yeah, it yeah. was. It was like a neutral site. Yeah, it was a neutral site game, which I
0: thought was weird. And then this year they play at Vivant. TCU is ranked twenty fourth. You have another time. You have another chance to be the top twenty five team. Boost your net rankings. Maybe you can sneak your way into the top twenty five. Uh, but the game before that, they play the Cougars, and the Cougars are kind of having a rough year right now. Uh, a lot of turnover. But again, you know that the Marriott Center is going to be filled with over fifteen thousand fans which that's going to give you a road environment, like a true road environment to test yourself. Like the roster itself, like you compare the two rosters, like Utah should be favored in this game. But because BYU has the home advantage, like that's a game that makes me worried because, again, you're going to have a lot of fans. This is a rivalry game. It's going to be packed. You got to come prepared for that one because I know that the BYU players are going to come prepared. Um, I feel like those two games back-to-back will tell me who Utah really is. Uh, because you open Pac-12 play and you're on the road, but you're playing against Cal and Stanford, um, some road environments that you aren't really battle-tested in. I feel like the only road environment in the conference, uh, I feel like there's two, maybe three, where... Eh, I'll change that. I think there's maybe four that I think you're really tested in. Obviously, number one is Arizona. Like, they're, they sell out every game. I think Oregon's another one that Utah usually seems to struggle on the road. Uh, my third would be USC. Um... They're also maybe having a little bit of a down year so far at the beginning, but it seems like their crowd is starting to come back into that that arena and, and fill those stands. And the fourth one, I know they're not a great team at all, uh, but Oregon State, uh, those guys have fans show up in the stands, and I feel like Utah always has a battle when they head up to Oregon State. So I'm interested to see what this last week of non-conference looks like for the Utes, and I feel like that's where we'll really get to see what these guys are made of. Is there, out of like the remaining games in non-conference, maybe between TCU and BYU, which game do you think is more important for the Utes to kind of identify themselves as a potential upsetter in the Pac-12 Conference?
1: Well, I think just based on the last week, Utah being in tournament-type conversations, you'd probably want to prioritize a win against a ranked team. Uh, That's something that goes a long way on your resume, and I think that's something that Utah will I mean, obviously we'll try to do, but if they're able to pull that off, then all of a sudden they're going to start getting more votes for being in the AP top 25. They're going to start getting a little more attention. And I think some of that early season hype goes a long way once you start talking about their resume at the end of the year. So I I would say that's probably the priority, but I think both games are really, really big games.
0: I like it. I I think I absolutely agree with that one. I'm interested to see how the running needs play. But, of course, we got to finish with our draft segment. Richie, I know you're stoked about this one. We're going to be drafting our all-time Utah Jazz players. I started last week with Utah quarterbacks, so you get to start this week. I feel like there's really two big
1: options. I'm interested to see which one you go with here first. Man, i it's kind of obvious for me. I'm taking Carl Malone. I, I love John Stockton, but I'm taking Carl Malone.
0: I like it. Yeah, I mean, proven score. Big body. I love it. All right, so I'm going to go with the obvious second choice. I'm going to go with John Stockton, right? I just think his assist numbers will never be touched again in the NBA and just a dominant point guard. So I'm going to go with the good old uh, number 12
1: as my first pick. I love it. Um, My second pick, I'm taking D. Will at the one. Uh, D. Will, man. If you if you're ever just needing a pick me up, just go watch some of his highlights from like the 2008. He was just insane. His crossover is so nice. I, I loved watching D. Will. D. Will is definitely the jazz player of our childhoods. Man that that was a time to be alive.
0: Um, caused for a lot of drama in the locker room, of course, but man, we loved it. Um, with my second pick, second pick, I'm going to go with a little bit of a a vintage pick. I'm going to go with Pistol Pete Maravich. Um, I know the, the name kind of goes around a lot, but I mean, he was, he was kind of the first star for the, the jazz team. I know he played in new Orleans, but I mean, he, he was good. Like he won the league scoring title for a year. Um, he was also a really good passer. He averaged almost six assists a game. Um, but he, he was a dominant scorer, And so I feel like a lot of people have been saying he was like a, a show to watch when
1: he was moving with the ball. So I'm going to go with pistol Pete. my second pick love it um my my third pick i'm taking donovan mitchell out the two i don't know if you've been watching a lot of what he's been doing this year but he has been insane um that game against the lakers last night was really a statement game i think he had 41 42 or something um but yeah he just he's elevated his play he's trying a little bit more on defense which is kind of fun to see and personally he He's like one of my favorite jazz players of all time. He's the one that really got me into the jazz. So yeah, I'm taking him at the two.
0: Yeah. His, his game last night against the Lakers was awesome to watch. Um, Just reminds me of how much passion he brings to every game. Um, It's, it's awesome to see him uh, happy again. Obviously he's been emphasizing that a lot, but man, he is just when he's on it, like he cannot be stopped. And it's so fun to watch. All right. At the three spot, I'm also gonna go a little bit old school, but still in our lifetime. I'm gonna go with the man AK forty-seven, Andre Karolenko. Um, that dude was a blocking machine. He was all de- uh, NBA all defense three times um, with the Jazz. Averaged three point three blocks um, for an entire season, and for his a three year span, he was averaging almost sixteen points, eight rebounds, four assists, three blocks, two steals, like absolutely insane numbers and who doesn't like a nickname like ak-47 like dude had it all plus he's russian like
1: intimidating i love it i'm gonna go with ak-47 dude i'm i'm so jealous of that pick i i kind of thought you were gonna take go bear and so i already I already had Kirlinko penciled in um yeah <laughs> dude, picture draymond green but can shoot like he would have been so good in this era he would have absolutely oh, right yeah he, he was ahead of his time i know um, and there's a couple ways I can go. It's kind of fun once you get to this stage of the jazz history, because you got a lot of guys that might be kind of on the same level. I think at the center, though, I'm going to take Rudy Gobert. Um, I mean, three time defensive player of the year His jazz tenure was amazing. I, I don't know how my team chemistry is going to do with him and Donovan and Carmel and Andy <laughs> will seems like a lot of personalities, but we'll, we'll see how it meshes. Well, well, maybe if you
0: have Jerry Sloan, maybe that could smooth things over. I know D. Will and him are the ones who had the arguments, but maybe, maybe with Donovan <laughs> and stuff, it can it can smooth things over. Um, all right, at the four spot, I'm going to go with a, a man who I wanted to name my child after as a young kid. I'm going to go with Carlos Boozer. Uh, shout Ooh. out to my sisters who told me not to name my first son Boozer. Um, that was a smart choice by them. Uh, but smart choice by me to pick him right here at the four spot. Um, from his in his span during the Jazz averaged about 20 points a game shooting a 54% clip from the field. I mean, his pick and roll with Darren Williams amazing. And I just feel like he was involved in a lot of clutch moments during his time with the Utah Jazz. So I'm going to go with him at the 4.
1: Uh, dude, that's it. That's a really good pick. I don't he didn't even cross my mind. Um man, at, at the 3 I was kind of thinking of going, doing something crazy, putting in just a sharpshooter like Kyle Corver, Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles. But I kind of think I got to go something probably a little more traditional as just a better overall player. I think I'm going to go Adrian Dantley out of the three. Oh yeah.
0: That's smart. Yeah. I had him on my list, but I had to I had to add some more size. So that was a good pick by you. I think that's a steal to draft right there at the five. Um. All right, my last pick. I'm going to go with the inspiration for go Gobert. I'm going to go with Mark Eaton. Um, he played all of his career with Utah, and he is considered by some to be the greatest shot blocker in NBA history. Seven four, averaged 3.5 blocks for the Jazz, and he is... I mean, he led the NBA in block category four times in a five-year stretch. And... In the 1984 to 85 season, he averaged almost six blocks a game, which is the all time highest average for a single season. So, I, you can't compete with Rudy's defense. Like, he's an all timer. But if there's anyone out of the Jazz that can compete with that guy, it's got to be Mark Eaton. So, that's what I'm going to take at the five. I love I love it. Uh, rest in peace, big Mark. That's, that's what I'm saying, dude. The rest in peace of the GOAT. Um, I, I had to. I was. I don't know. Maybe let's go one more. Let's go our sixth man. Who's going to be your
1: sixth man on this roster? Because I feel like we've got oh. some more
0: interesting picks.
1: Dude, I'm taking a guy. I wanted him at my five, but I couldn't justify him over Rudy Gobert. I'm taking Mehmet Okur. I, that was, I that was my backup. <laughs> Dude, what, what a stud. He's just an incredible shooter. Like Andre Kirilenko, if he was born 10 years later, he would be lighting up the NBA right now. Um, yeah, I'm taking Mehmet Okur on my six. Okay. That's a good pick. I'm thinking I'm going to, with my six, I'm going to go with like
0: the greatest sixth man of all time. I'm going to go with Thurl Bailey, the man himself. <laughs> um, He was, I, I mean, obviously he is iconic now. You love to hear the voice. I think he's got an album out too. The man can dominate some church hymns. Um, but from 1984 to 1991, he's averaging 16 points and seven or sorry, six rebounds off the bench. So I got to go with my man. Throw Bailey um, at the at the bench position, dude. I feel like our I want to see our matchups go head to head now. Like if we can create this in two K, dude. I, I want to see. We could. I think we dude, could. <laughs> I feel like this this next week we should try it out, see what happens, and we can let the viewers know who actually has the better roster. Okay, deal. It's a deal. Okay, I like it. All right, well, everyone, that is our Thatcher Effect episode for this week. Thank you all for tuning in. We, we hope to see you guys next week. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also hear more about our episodes and contribute to weekly content by following us on Instagram at Thatcher Effect Podcast and on Twitter at RichieOssler3 and at Nate Thatcher15. We'd like to thank James Burchett for the intro music and the Basketball Podcast Network for hosting us. We'll see you guys next week.